But let's get our Bibles out tonight. We're studying through the first few chapters of Ephesians here because we spent time in chapters 5 and 6, so we're doing 1 through 4 now. We're in chapter 2 tonight. I hope you enjoyed all our installments of chapter 1. So much good theology in Ephesians chapter 1. Talked about predestination and uh, a lot of good solid doctrine. If you didn't hear those messages, I encourage you to get online and soak them in. They'll be good for your soul. They'll give you good solid theology that's important for us as believers to understand. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 2. By God's grace, I'm planning to get through verse 7, but let's see what happens. I mean, he comes back in the middle, I'm going to quit preaching, so. Chapter 2, 1 through 7, let's thank God for the word and uh, let's enjoy it together. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you that we're brothers and sisters, that we can come here on a Wednesday night in the middle of the week and enjoy your presence together. Father, we thank you that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and Holy Spirit, you're moving in us and you're moving in this place. So quicken our hearts and quicken our minds tonight and open the eyes of our understanding that we can drink in the depth of your word tonight, that it would change us from the inside out. Father, we ask that in Jesus' name and the church said, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, mm, but God, oh, I could stay there all night. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, Jesus, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there for tonight. There was so much good stuff in there, amen? That's like a loaf of bread coming out of the oven when you smell it. Never gets old. So chapter 1 highlighted some of the many benefits we have in Christ, and we we found five times in chapter 1 it talked about being in him, So we get this concept of being in Christ. It's rooted and grounded in Ephesians. It's part of the Pauline epistles. It's a theme of Paul's writing. Uh, We we get these benefits from being in Christ. And now the focus shifts in chapter 2 from, uh, you know, what we have in him to the fact that we have been made alive in Christ. Now, chapter 2 is a powerful chapter, but it's also a sobering chapter, and it's a hard chapter for the lost to hear because nobody likes to admit they're lost, and nobody likes to admit they're in sin, and nobody likes to admit they're spiritually dead. And I'm going to talk about all of that tonight in these few seven verses here, but the shift has been made of what we have in him to the fact that now we've been made alive in Christ. Verse 1 gives us a clear and sobering picture of our true spiritual condition. Every person who has not come to Jesus Christ by faith, repented of their sin, and received 
the free gift of salvation is in this state, and you were dead in your offenses and sins. Say dead. Say it like you mean it. That was better. Yeah, we were dead, what, in our offenses and our sins. Now, lost humanity has a hard time admitting that they're lost. Maybe you can think back to before you came to be with Jesus and you thought, well, I'm a good person and I, you know, I pay my taxes, I brush my teeth, I change my clothes, I shower regularly. Yeah, not, you know, I'm not as bad as this person or I, I never murdered anybody or I, I didn't commit adultery. I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? Isn't that what people say? Well, some of you are looking at me like you're so holy. But we played the comparison game because why? We didn't want to admit we were spiritually dead or that we were in sin. Lost humanity has a really hard time getting to this place and the enemy confuses them with all kinds of false teaching and humanism and mysticism and and we're gonna talk about that a little bit but the enemy does not want anyone to realize that they're spiritually dead because then they're gonna seek a way to become spiritually alive. So here... Paul is telling us, you were dead in your offenses and sins. Now, our culture doesn't like to admit anything is sin. You know, 50 years ago, our, our grandparents' generation or whatever, there were, there were moral boundaries, there were moral standards, there were moral, you know, codes that people followed. And, and, and certain things were, you know, looked at because the Bible said it was sin. The culture said, well, that's sin. But come on now, tonight in our culture, the boundaries have been shattered, the walls are being pushed back, and nothing is sin. It's an alternative lifestyle, it's a different way, it's another path. It's everything but sin. But here it says, and you were dead in your offenses and your sins. We don't like to admit we're lost, we don't like to admit we're in sin. It's that humanistic ideology that's so prevalent in our culture, and it says things like this, we're all good people, we're kind and meaningful, we're seekers, we're basically moral, we're all spiritual, and of course, we're all children of God. Come on, you've heard this stuff before. In fact, maybe you've heard it so much that you didn't even flinch when I said it. And the truth is that all of that is not true. We're not all children of God. We're not all basically good. We're not all spiritual and moral. No, without Christ, we're lost in our sin, and we need redemption. We need to be revived, and we need to be saved. Oh, we're all basically good. We're all seekers, and all roads lead to God, and all paths, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all wrong spiritually. As the text says here, we're dead. We're disconnected from God. There's a wall between us and God. Our sin nature that we inherited at birth has estranged us from God. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor, I know all this. You know, I've been saved so long. And listen to me, sin, even as a child of God, if we mess with it, it will mess up our relationship with God. And that we can, once again, go back to sin and get so covered up in it and so used to it that we, once again, estrange ourselves from God. So sin, you know, regardless if we've been born again or not, which we're going to talk about, sin is nothing to be messed with by anyone because it will separate us from God. The truth is, now listen to this, we were all born lost. Nobody came out of their mama's womb, born again, speaking in tongues, preaching a sermon. Under the curse 
of sin, that original sin that came through us, through birth, through Adam and Eve. The Bible says in John that we have to be born of water and in spirit. What does that mean? When we're in our mother's womb, we're in amniotic fluid. We're in water. When the water breaks, we're born. We're born of water. That's a natural birth but we have to be born of spirit. Why? Because that natural birth that we were born through the water, we inherit the sin that came through Adam and Eve, and that original sin is in our spiritual DNA. Every one of us were born lost. We're under the curse of sin, and all that goes along with that, we need to be reborn to have a genuine relationship with God. Don't, you say, Pastor, why do we have to go over this over and over again? Because the text is, wants us to focus on the fact that we need to know what we were saved from so we can get excited about it, so we can be thankful for it, so that we can live worthy of our calling, amen? Romans 5, 12 through 14 says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all have sinned. So death came in through Adam. He came into our spiritual DNA. We were born in it. And then we confirmed our sin nature by sinning as soon as we could. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was not in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone where there is no law. Listen to 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. There it is. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is the type of him who is to come. So Romans is giving us the, the kind of the breakdown, the paper trail of how sin got into our spiritual DNA. It's irrefutable here. All of us were born lost. There's no way around it. Uh, in it says, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. I want you to catch that today. There's, there's some key words in that little phrase right there. In which you previously walked according to the course of this world. Now, I want you to notice that word walked. When, when that word is put there, it's trying to paint a picture for us. When it says we walked, it's saying that it's speaking about our daily routine and our habits and our affections and our pursuits in life. When you say someone's walk, someone's path, you know, it's trying to paint a picture of that daily routine, the things we do, our habits, our affections. Our walk is, is here. It's been saying that our walk was a worldly walk. It wasn't a godly walk, amen? And there again, this is humbling. I know we're going to get beat up a little bit here by this text because it's designed to dress us down a little bit to humble us because most people get saved and like to pretend they were always saved. And that, you know, we never came out of the muck and the mire. We just, you know, we were always like this. But the truth is our walk was a carnal walk. It was a worldly walk. It was the opposite of godliness. Now, some of us are well aware of that because we've been saved from really dark, dark stuff. Other of us, you know, we, we're not too sure. Were we really that bad? Were we really that lost? We're going to get into why we really were. Without Jesus, no matter how hard we tried, look what it says, that we walked, what, according to the course of this world. So no matter how hard we tried to be good and do the right things, we wound up going with the flow of this world. If you do not have salvation through Jesus and the Holy Spirit in you, no matter how hard you try, you will go with the flow of the world. I mean, some people are worse than others. Some people, you know, do you ever see people like walking up the escalator? You know, they just can't, they just can't stand there. They got to be like, 
That's how some of us were in sin. We were just, you know, full bore heads. Some other people were just kind of, you know. But we were going with the flow of the world, all of us. Whether we were racing towards it or we were just kind of, you know, drifting along with it. Because without Jesus, we have no other recourse. We, we, we have no other way. So it says here that we were going, you know, with the course of this world. And I want you to get that picture in your head, that without Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to get caught up in the flow of this world, then it's very easy to do. It's very alluring. It's very deceptive. Man, the world can get on you really quick. That's why, you know, we need to remember that old, you know, song that they sang in Sunday school, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear, you know, because the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful before you get caught up in the flow of this world because it'll suck you in and it'll suck you down. And that's what the text says here in which you previously walked. That's our habits, our daily routines, our pursuits to the course of this world. Now look at the next line there. According to the prince of the power of the air. Now that's an interesting phrase. Who is this prince that Paul speaks of in Ephesians? It's none other than the devil himself. The devil is the prince of the power of the air. And you see, that sounds like a really nice title, the prince. I, I would, you know, some people, you know, girls always want to be fairy princesses, right? You, that's why you got married and dressed up in that white costume like you were a snow princess. And, you know, and you got your prince who turned into a frog. I apologize. But, you know, we got this idea of nobility and royalty, and it's, and it's special. And obviously Jesus, you know, commands all of that. But here's the enemy, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, this fallen angel, who Paul refers to as the prince of the power of the air. Now, why is the devil called the prince of the power of the air? Because he was cast out of heaven. Do you know, God threw him out of heaven when he fell. We're going we're gonna to look at some scriptures that uh, tell us about that. But Satan, Lucifer, who was cast out of heaven, and now, listen, he dwells in the atmospheric realm of the earth. You know, many scholars speculate that hell, the uh, where... Humanity is contained now is in the core of the earth, um, and that's that holding place where Abraham's bosom was and Hades, and you know, and then you have the earth, and the the title deed to the earth is in dispute. The enemy tries to take hold of it because of sin. Jesus is going to take that back for us when he opens that scroll. But listen to me, where where is the kingdom of darkness? Well, it dwells in the atmospheric heavens. Now. Can you see it? No. If your eyes were open to the spiritual realm, we would see all kind of things in the atmosphere uh, and, and in the spiritual realm that would probably really freak us out. Angels and demons and all kinds of things going on. But the prince of the power of the air, he is called that because he's relegated. He can't stay in heaven anymore. He can go into God's presence and petition and accuse the brethren. And he's, he's in and he's out and he isn't out. But his dwelling place is in the atmospheric heavens here. Now, Jesus said in Luke uh, 10, 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Where did he fall to? The atmospheric realm of the earth, okay? That's where he's at. Jesus saw him fall. This is where he fell to. You, you think, God, couldn't you send him any other place? Why did you have to send him here? 
It's all part of God's plan. It's all part of uh, God redeeming us from uh, sin and our sin nature and the enemy being the author of sin, the author of uh, all of these things. He comes here uh, to cause trouble in the earth. Jesus said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from the heaven. Isaiah gives us more detail into uh, the fall of the enemy. He says in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, listen to this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground? Which did, yeah, he cried too when they cast him out. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Listen to verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Whoa. There's Satan in his rebellion, swelling himself up in pride, saying, I'm going to be like God and I will ascend above the heights in the clouds. I will be like the Most High, verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The enemy fell in his pride and rebellion. He took a third of the angels with him. He's relegated to the atmospheric regions of the, of the earth here. He deals with mankind, uh, Hades, the abyss, and all these things in the core of the earth. So understand... Because of sin, the enemy has some right and rulership in the earth at this time. And that's why the church of Jesus Christ, those who are born again and part of the family of God, are the only thing restraining the darkness in the earth at this time. The Bible talks about the restrainer being removed and then all hell breaking loose. That's going to happen when the church is raptured and taken into the heavens. There'll be nothing to restrain the darkness that the enemy would love to cover the earth with. So that's where he is, and that's why he's called the prince of the power of the air. Understand some things about the enemy. Understand some things about the kingdom of darkness. Be wise so he can't exploit us and deceive us. The last thought of verse 2 is this. It tells us what Satan's been up to in his exile as he broods over the earth and all of its inhabitants. <coughs> Listen to what it says here. Of the spirit... What spirit is that? It's that dark spirit, that spirit of Antichrist, of that spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Did you hear that? Are you reading that? Yeah, the sons of disobedience. That's not a heavy metal band out of California. The sons of disobedience. <laughs> the sons of disobedience are everyone who rejects Jesus as Messiah, specifically talking about the, the Jewish nation that didn't receive Christ and rejected Christ and wanted him crucified, talking about them and everyone who rejects Jesus now are in disobedience. Why? Because uh, God has offered salvation to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. Yet some people say, no, I don't want your Jesus. I don't need to be forgiven. I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Come on, I'm preaching. You're just looking at me. Amen. And, and, and that's the attitude. Well, now that disobedience has made you not a child of God, but a son of disobedience. And uh, what is the enemy doing? He's exerting spiritual influence and control over all those who refuse Jesus Christ. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has authority to those who reject Christ and embrace sin. And he's exerting spiritual power and dominion over the lives of those who have not yet come to Christ. 
Verse 3 provides another description of our condition without Christ. Remember, verse one's telling us, uh, chapter 1 is telling us we're in him. Now we're finding out what it means you know, to be redeemed by Christ. Um, but it's painting this picture here. It's giving us a description. Now listen to verse 3. Among them were two all for, formerly lived by lived in the lust of our flesh. So here, now we're getting into the flesh. Among them, we two all formerly, formerly, that's, you know, what we were before Christ, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, whereby nature, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So let's try and untangle verse three a little bit. In reality, look what it's saying here. Without Christ, we were, you know, separated from God. We were the sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. So it's painting this picture here that in reality, all along, we were born into sin. We were born lost, and we need to be saved from ourselves. You know, the closer I get to God, the more I get to know Jesus. You know what my biggest problem is? You got, no. The big... (laughs) The biggest problem is me. I need to be saved from me. And then you're thinking, yeah, we need to be saved from you too. No, you need to be saved from you. It's, it's my fall nature. It's my willfulness. It's my, you know, all of these things that are in me, even though I'm born again and I'm saved and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, still got flesh to deal with. And, and, you know, you look in the mirror every morning, and, and who stares back at you? Your biggest problem. I need to be saved from myself on a daily basis. You say, why? Because our flesh will absolutely have its way unless we exercise the spiritual authority that Jesus gives us to put it down and nail it to the cross. Got to be nailed to the cross daily. You know, it's kind of like showering. You skip a few days, and it catches up to you. Come on, right? you got to crucify that thing daily. You, you don't shower for a week. You're going to smell like you want to be alone. People are going to pick up on that. You know, what's the matter with you? You need some alone time? Yeah, that flesh, every day when you wake up, there it is, right there, just to want its way. But I'm born again, but I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. But the same Spirit that... Raised Christ from the dead dwells in me. But yet you and I are going to war against this flesh, and we're going to see some of that in here till the day we die and lay it down. Man, I can't wait to lay this body down. Amen. Now, amen. Now, I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going to use it for his glory, and I'm going to enjoy what God. But listen, I, I want to just let it go at some point here. Let this flesh go. So you know, that the, the full measure of my redemption can be realized as I'm released from this body of sin, as Paul said. You know, so the reality is we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to deal with our flesh every day. It says, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh. Now, I want you to notice the word previously. Did you see that? We too all previously, you know, before we came to Christ, before we were born again, all these things, On the other side of surrendering to Jesus, I want to say something. There should be a change in us. You know, if if you're sitting in church and, you know, you're you're reading your Bible and stuff, but there's no change, you've got to get born again, amen? 
when you are born again, there will be a change. Now, it's not going to be perfection, but it's going to be an obvious change, amen? We're not going to be perfect. Well, you know, I still sinned, or I had a bad thought, or I had a bad attitude, or, you know, I lost my temper. We're not going to be perfect. That should come as no shock to us. But the thing is, we've got to be different, and we need to be changing day by day. Day by day, we should be looking more like Jesus, not less. You know, some people get saved, they get excited, they get on fire, they serve God, they use their gifts, they grow, they're in the word, and, and then, you know, they get comfortable. And then they stop serving, and they stop reading, and they stop praying, and they stop attending, and all of a sudden, you know, that process of being sanctified comes to a screeching halt, and the Holy Spirit's trying to drag us, and we're like a mule. You know, you ever see somebody try to drag a mule that doesn't want to be drug? They, they plant their feet in, and they pull backwards, and oh. I mean, it's just, you see them things, and you, you know why they call them jackasses, don't you? Because, I mean, they're just, you know, and if we wrestle against God like that, it's foolishness. But day by day, we should be changing and being conformed to his image and more and more like Jesus every day. So previously, we were like this, but now I'm more like Jesus than I was previously. Amen? That's an important thing for us to understand. If you're still struggling with the same sins, the same attitudes, the same problems, if there's no victory, you got to get alone with God. You got to get with someone to pray for you. You got to get free. Amen? All right. So what does, the, what does the lust of the flesh drive us to do? It talks about, you know, we too previously lived in the lust of the flesh. Now, that, that whole thing, lust of the flesh, it sounds really bad, doesn't it? Just say lust of the flesh. Ooh, dirty, you need a shower. Say it three times, you need a shower. Well, the lust of the flesh drives us to do things. In Galatians 5, 19 through 20, write that scripture down. Galatians 5, 19 through 20 gives us a list of what the lust of the flesh looks at like. It's a detailed list, and it's great. Listen to Galatians 5, 19 through 20. Now, the deeds of the flesh, here it is, are evident, which are, here we go, sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. Now, I read through that list fast. Honestly, we could preach through every one of those on a month of Sundays to get through what's in there. But, I mean, just to look what's in there, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of a scary list. It's a dark list. Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, uh, witchcraft. What is that? You know, rebellion and control, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers. Hey, anybody drive a car? selfish ambition. Wow, there's one that, the, you know, our generation needs to hear, the self-promoting generation, even in the church. Promote yourself, you know. Uh, dissensions, factions, causing trouble, breaking unity, uh, splitting churches, all of these things. That Galatians 5, 19 through 20, that's a list of the lust of the flesh, and it's ugly from top to bottom. And please know that all of us are capable of doing everything on that list if we remain in the flesh. I know we try to look pretty and we clean it up and put nice clothes on and squirt some perfume on and we think, you know, we're, we're holy, but without Jesus, 
without Jesus, we are capable of doing everything on that list. So how do we overcome the sinful drives of our own flesh? Two ways. Number one, we must be born again. John 3, 6 through 8. You know John 3, 16, but listen to John 3, 6 through 8. That which is flesh is born of the flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So what? You know, if something is born of the flesh, it's flesh. If it's born of the spirit, it's spirit. That's why we need a spiritual rebirth. It goes back to our our natural birth in water. It goes back to original sin. We need to be born again. Why? Because if we're trying to serve God and we're not saved, we're doing it in the flesh. And the flesh cannot please God. It cannot even submit to God. But once we're born again and we have the spirit of God working in us, sanctifying us, conforming us to the image of Christ, now we can please God because the blood of Jesus makes us acceptable in the Father's sight. So first of all, if you want to deal with that Galatians 5 list and you don't want those things in your life, you've got to be born again. Okay, we get that, but there's a number two. We must also learn to walk in the spirit. Now listen to another Galatians 5 scripture, Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire or the deeds of the flesh. Listen to 17. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. That's a powerful text. I encourage you to write down Galatians 5, 16 through 18. Meditate on it. Get it in your spirit. Let the Holy Spirit show you everything that's in there. But understand this. We have to be born again, but more than that, we have to learn to walk in the Spirit once we are born again. Verse 17 in there is telling us about that internal war that's in our heart. Look what it says, the flesh and the Spirit, what? They're opposed to each other. They're like water and oil. They don't mix. They're fighting. Did you ever feel that tug of war in your heart, that fight that's going on in your mind? Paul said, why do I do the things that I hate and the things which I want to do, I cannot do? What is he describing? He's describing that internal conflict that's in us. And what is it? It's a warring between the nature of our flesh and the spirit of God that now resides in us by Jesus Christ. So there's an eternal struggle that's going on within all of us. And we, you know, we've got to fight the good fight and we've got to keep the faith and we've got to starve our flesh and feed our spirit till our spirit is more powerful than our flesh. You know, that's what fasting is all about. People wonder why fasting is, uh, you know, a doctrine of the church. It's something that's powerful because it's a powerful tool. The minute you starve your flesh, it loses its power. Did you ever not eat for so long that you feel completely weak? Come on, with me, it's every 15 minutes. I got to eat, right? And if you fasted for any extended period of time, you know your flesh gets so weak, it gets dull. And then all of a sudden, your spirit gets stronger, and it's more acute and sensitive to God. It's more in tune with the Holy Spirit. 
we, we got to starve that flesh. Oh, you know what the world says? Feed your flesh, feed your flesh, feed it, feed it, feed it. Feed it food, feed it entertainment, food, feed it pleasure, feed it distractions. I don't know why I have such a hard time with my flesh. Stop feeding it. You have teenage kids that bother you? Stop feeding. No, I'm just kidding. If you starve it and you weaken it, your spirit will get victory over it, amen? So we've got to be born again, and we've got to walk in the spirit. How do we walk in the spirit? We've got to starve that flesh a little bit so that our spirit can be stronger than it. Verse 18 clues us in on how we can learn to walk in the spirit. Now listen to 18 here. It says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So here it is. Here's the clue. We have to decide to submit to the Holy Spirit's leading. There again, it goes back to the mule illustration, right? If we want to push and tug and, and, and dig our heels in against what God's doing in us, then, you know, we're not submitting. But if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. That's important because if we're under the law, it means now we're in the legal realm where when we sin and we're guilty, there's condemnation. It's a whole big mess. We've got to get out from under the law and get into grace. How is that possible? You got to be born again. You got to walk in the Spirit. You got to allow the grace of God to be the strength of your life the grace of God to be the, the strength of your life, and let the Holy Spirit lead us. Now, I find walking in the Spirit conceptually is a hard thing for Christians to grasp. I believe I can teach on it. I can show you what I've learned about it, but each of us need to get in our secret place and seek the face of God and ask him to teach us how to walk in the Spirit. He might ask you to fast. Don't run out of your prayer closet. Listen to him. He might ask you, you know, to, to stop this or, or, or don't watch that anymore or, or turn off that electronic device or don't hang out with this person anymore. To walk in the spirit, there needs to be a purging of some things in our life that are keeping us in the flesh. If we feed that flesh, our spirit's not going to prevail over it and the Holy Spirit's going to have to drag us through the course that God has picked out for us. So, got to be born again. we got to learn to walk in the Spirit. The second half of verse 3 finishes painting the picture of our, our true spiritual condition here. Paul's trying to get us to see by the Holy Spirit the true nature of what we were before we came to Christ. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature, listen to this, children of wrath just as the rest. You know, there goes that humanistic philosophy of everybody's good and everybody's holy and all dogs go to heaven. And why? Because without Christ, we are, you know, separated from God. We, we are overwhelmed by the pull of the flesh. And, you know, by nature, we are children of wrath. What does that mean? See, the Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Why? Because God pushes back against sin so that the sinner will come to a place of repentance. And that when we're in sin, the most loving thing God can do is release his wrath at us. What does the enemy do with someone who's in sin? He does nothing. He greases the wheels. He makes them go faster. He makes everything easy for him. Have you ever seen people that don't serve the Lord and they got no troubles and no problems and they're getting raises and promotions? Come on, David said, I saw the wicked prosper and I nearly slipped. 
Why? Why did he see the wicked prosper? Because the enemy don't bother people he's got. You know, he speeds up the process. They're, you know, they got one foot in the grave and another foot on the banana peel, and they're just, you know, teetering on the precipice of eternal damnation. And he's like, got you right where I want you. Oh, but try and serve God. Try and serve the purpose of God for your life. Try, and he'll unleash all the demons of hell to push you back every inch you try and come forward. Come on. See, this is that internal war, that internal struggle. This is the prince of the power of the air exerting his influence over the earth and resisting those who would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Excuse me. We've got to be born again. We've got to walk in the Spirit. We've got to let the Holy Spirit teach us how to do those things. But we need to remember that, you know, if we give in to the flesh, we put ourselves back under the wrath of God. We were children of wrath. We were lost. We were driven by our lusts and our passion, but now we belong to Jesus, and things have changed. There are three key words and phrases in verse 3 uh, the, that I want to look at here. Let me just read through the text a little bit more. Among them, too, we all for, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind and by our nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. Let, let's unpack some of that here. You know, that, that word indulgence, you know, we indulged in those things. Uh, we gave ourselves over to them. Our, our, talking about our mind, you know, our thought life. Uh, some of these things that we need to, we need to think about here. Uh, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. Um, let's talk about indulgence a little bit. I, wanna, I want you to understand that without Christ, there's no restraining the flesh. And we will indulge in fleshly things. Now, the word indulgence means the behavior or attitude of people who allow themselves to do what they want, even though they know it's wrong and unhealthy indulgence. Let me read that again. The behavior or attitude of people who allow themselves to do what they want, even though they know it's wrong and unhealthy. How many of us have been there? Come on, when you're standing in front of the refrigerator. I mean, let's just take that. I mean, and that's part of it too. We know what we should eat. We know what we shouldn't eat. I'm going to be 53 years old. I can't eat like I was, you know, 15. I can't have fruit roll-ups for lunch and, you know, all this stuff that, you know, you see how kids eat, and then you see adults eating like that. Oh, now it's quiet. Now you're like, you just better move on, buddy. No, but it shows that we, and we know it's unhealthy, and we know we shouldn't do it, you know, and we haven't seen our toes in a while, but still, it's the holidays. And we indulge. And, and you know, that might be a, a physical example, but it translates into the spiritual realm, too. We know what we should do and what we shouldn't do, but we give ourselves license to do some of these things that just destroy us spiritually and make us spiritually out of shape. So indulgence is part of that fleshly lifestyle. Now, a life that is marked by the flesh, if someone's in the flesh, then they will overindulge in everything. They'll eat too much. They'll drink too much. They'll talk too much. They'll argue too much. They'll want too much. Come on. 
A life marked by the flesh is a life marked by overindulgence. It's, I want more of everything. Now, the key for the Christian, the key for the believer is moderation. Say moderation. Where there was indulgence and where we were doing things we knew we shouldn't, now we should do all things in moderation. And that goes with everything, everything that's pleasurable, everything that we enjoy. You know, you think about if you overindulge in something, it loses its, it loses its, it's blessing. Think of your favorite food. You know, uh, I, I like pizza. Well, what if you ate pizza for every meal for a month? You don't like pizza anymore. You'd want anything but a piece of pizza. And see, that's what indulgence is. That's what overindulgence Moderation is the key. You say, well, what should we be moderate in? Everything. Even if it's not sinful, yes. Too much of a good thing becomes bad. So moderation is the key for the Christian to replace indulgence. Now, the, we talk about our mind. Our thought life is a battlefield. It's the battlefield between the spirit and the flesh that we talked about. Every action that we do starts with a thought. We're talking about our thought life here. You, you know, we don't just, well, I don't know why I did that, because you've been thinking about it for a month. I don't know why I bought that, because you've been staring at it on Amazon for two weeks. It didn't just jump in your cart and hit buy now. You see, what we focus on, our thought life, that's the battlefield where the enemy gets us to think of things. And that's why, you know, the scripture tells us to take captive every thought that exalts itself above the knowledge of God and to cast it down. So the battle is in our mind. We've got to get our minds under control. If we allow our flesh to control what we think, we are dead in the water. If we allow our flesh to control what we think, and don't just think because you're a Christian that you'll only think godly thoughts and have godly attitudes and a godly worldview and, and, and everything will fall. No, you know, we still got to deal with this flesh and this mind and all the baggage that we bring with us and all the wrong theology and wrong thoughts and wrong things that we've been taught growing up. But if we let the flesh control what we think, I think the church in America has gotten pretty fleshly. That's why when we look around and we see what's going on in our nation, we got to say, you know what, if my people who are called by my name, come on, we'll humble us and repent. And see, yeah, we got to do some of that, amen. But God, we, we didn't do it. We didn't vote for it. We didn't, we didn't say we wanted this and that and abortion. We're against all that. But have we lived in moderation? Have we embraced holiness? Have we allowed our minds to be captivated by Christ so we think kingdom thoughts instead of carnal thoughts and pick and, and, and want kingdom things and not carnal things? Oh, help us, Lord. You know, it, it's just a, it's a hard place to come to. I, I, I'm, you know, at this stage of the game, I'll repent wherever he says repent. Anything to, to turn the course. You know, if I got to take the speck out of my eye and everybody else is walking around with logs, I want the speck out of my eye. So, you know, here we are, we're, we're you know, we're the, we're the children of God, yet we got this internal struggle going on. Um, you know, it says we were by nature children of wrath. 
Uh, listen to Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, I started to quote this before, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that's what the wrath of God is for, to come against the sinner so that the sinner will repent. Uh, verses 1 through 3 give us the cold, hard truth about who we are before Jesus. And it's humbling. It's kind of hard to swallow for a lot of people. But if verses 1 through Three, we're like Jesus being arrested, crucified, and put in the tomb. Verses four through six are like Resurrection Sunday. Because, you know, I mean, it's a bad picture here if you read one through three. But by the time you get to verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's Resurrection Sunday, amen. I was born in sin. I was a sinner. I was messed up. I was a child of wrath. God's wrath was revealed against me. I got this internal struggle going on. I want to walk in the flesh, but I need to walk in the spirit, but God. But God stepped into that whole big mess of humanity. God stepped into that whole big mess of you and I. He stepped in and he grabbed a hold of us and, and, and that but God moment had. You know, say, but God, were, you know, what, what, what did God do? He was rich in mercy. He was great in love and he loved us. That's what this is all about, amen. You know, I'm not, I'm not up here, you know, preaching the word to make everybody feel bad and guilty and, you know, look what we were before Jesus and we were just, you know, little rodents on the ground. And The point is that we were that, but he loved us enough to change that. And that's why you and I should rejoice no matter what's going on around us because we've all experienced that but God moment in our lives. Verse 5 says, he loved us when we were in the worst possible spiritual condition, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings. Oh, we were, we were guilty. We were spiritually dead and dormant. We, we were full of sin. And that's when Christ stepped in and, and that but God moment reversed the course of verses 1 through 3 in all of our lives. Paul expresses the same thought in a different way in Romans 5, 8 through 9 when he says this, but God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Did you catch that? Did you pick up that being saved from the wrath of God, amen? The wrath of God is what? For sinners, so they'll repent. But for the righteous, for the redeemed, the wrath of God is removed off our lives. God's not mad at you anymore. God's not, you know, trying to get you. God's not up there keeping score. No, he looks at you and he sees the blood of Jesus and he sees you as redeemed, a child of his, amen. We've got to get the right view of our heavenly father. Oh, this is a tough sell. I feel like I'm selling snow to Eskimos right now. No, no, I was bad this week. You don't understand. He's definitely mad at me. The blood of Jesus if we sin, we have an advocate, amen? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin, amen? So if, if we mess up, we confess, and, and he redeems us, he restores us, he revives us from our mess, and then he's not mad at us. Ah, oh, some of you like being having somebody mad at you, don't you? Well, 
we were children of wrath, but no more. Uh, we've been redeemed. It was a it was a a messy situation, verses one through three. But thank God, we were dead. We were in our wrongdoings, but God. Now it says He made us alive together with Christ. Now I want you to see that it's important that we pick up all the word choice phraseology in there. It just didn't say He made us alive in Christ, or he didn't make us alive because of Christ. It says he made us alive together with Christ. And there's that, the idea of being in him. Are you catching that? You know, we're in him. We're in Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. This is, you know, what theologians call regeneration. If you understand Christian theology, that before man uh, comes to Christ and is redeemed, he's unregenerated. He's lost. He's dead. Without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. You know, everybody throughout our culture has watched that show at some time or knows about the walking dead. That was us without Christ. You know, just dormant, lifeless, purposeless, just kind of wandering around, trying to find meaning, trying to stay alive. But in Christ, now the theologians would say when we're regenerated, it's when we become born again. Now our spirit becomes alive to God and the Holy Spirit's in us so we have a connection with the Father. Are you catching this? We were all, according to verses one through three, degenerates, but now we're regenerates. Anybody happy about that, you degenerates out there? (laughs) We were all degenerates at one time, but thank God. Together with Christ, it's the whole in him thing. No regeneration without Jesus. No regeneration without confessing our sin and being born again. People say, well, I've been spiritually enlightened. Not if you haven't come to Christ, you haven't. You just have another layer of deception added to the delusion. By grace, you have been saved. There it is, the foundational bedrock of the New Testament church. You know, we're alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's the whole bedrock of the church there. We're saved not by works, not by striving, not by secret knowledge or Gnosticism or or because we've become worthy or because we're God's favorite or because we got lucky. We're saved by God's amazing grace, period. And if we're saved by grace, we're kept by his grace, amen? We don't have to get saved and then try and be good little performers for Jesus, good little soldiers working our way into his good graces. It's foolishness. It's grace. Nothing, nothing I can do, you know, nothing I can do can earn my keep or, or, or make him, you know, uh, oh, well, that, you know. It's like a little, a little child drawing a picture and saying, you know, uh, is my picture good enough for you to love me now, daddy? Well, that's... That's, it's never going to be it. Oh, man, I don't know. The proportions are wrong. You need to work on your, you know, your coloring is out of the lines here, and I think you better try again. He loves us. He loves us. It's not based on performance. Stop trying to perform your way into God's good graces and accept his grace. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be, you know, to the place where we can earn what he gives us freely. So we were degenerates, now we're regenerated. We've been saved by grace. That's the cornerstone of our Christian theology. I want to finish up the verses 6 and 7. Uh, it winds down pretty quickly here. Uh, it says, 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. So there again, there's a picture of we started off born in our sin. We, we get to this place where we're redeemed because we've come to Christ. So what does he do? He raises us up. What does he raise us up from? The muck and the mire and the sin of this world. You and I are above that. Why? Because we worked really hard and we impressed God? No, because Jesus lifted us out of that. He raised us up and he seated us with him. You've got to understand every time you see that phrase in Scripture, seated, it speaks of something being finished and complete. What did Jesus do after he was risen and he ascended into heaven? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, his posture proved it when he sat down in eternity and said, it's done. Anytime we're seated, it means it's complete, it's finished. So he raised us up out of the muck and mire with Jesus, and he seated us with him in heavenly places. He raised us. That means we're redeemed, and our salvation is settled and secure. Heavenly places means our inheritance, our treasure, our eternal home is not of this earth. Are you building a kingdom here, or are you building one there? I gotta redo the kitchen. I gotta redo the bathroom. I gotta. I, I need a new this and I need to do that. And I gotta upgrade this and I gotta. I'm not staying here. You staying here? You wax a rental car? No. You drive it like you stole it. You beat the brakes off it. Come on, right? What are we doing here, building a kingdom here? Foolish. He pulled us up out of here. We're above this place. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. We're already seated in heavenly places. Our salvation is secure. Our redemption is secure. We're safe in his hands. We can rely on his keeping power. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know what? We have become trophies of God's grace. And for eternity, he's going to show off what he accomplished in Christ with us, the church. For eternity, we're going to be a beacon of light in the new Jerusalem with Jesus, and we are just going to be a shining example of the grace of God. It's not going to be the glory. It's not going to go to us. It's going to go to Jesus forever and ever and ever because of his amazing grace. Well, we're going to stop here this week, uh, and we're going to bow our heads, and we're going to thank God for everything that we heard from the Word tonight. Father, thank you for the Word. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for these seven verses. There's so much in here for us, God. I pray that each person would get what they needed to hear tonight from your heart, Father. Send us all home with a deposit from you, that we would understand who we are in Christ, that who, who we are in him that we're redeemed, that, yes, we still struggle with the flesh, but we can learn to walk in the spirit. We can starve our flesh and allow our spirit to become strong so we can walk in the spirit, so we can please you and glorify you and produce fruit with our lives. Help us to understand we don't have to strive. We're accepted in the beloved. You love us. There's nothing we could do to make you love us more. We have been redeemed and covered by the blood of the Lamb. And our eternity is settled. Our heavenly reward awaits us. So help us to serve you with thankful, joyful hearts. 
pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise tonight.